Bibles and turn with me to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 4. Deuteronomy, chapter 4. You can find that if you're using one of the Red Pew Bibles on page 150. So Deuteronomy, chapter 4. This morning we'll be starting with verse 44. We're going to be reading through verse 5 of chapter 5. Well, uh, two weeks ago, I had the privilege of performing the wedding of one of my cousins. Uh, to be perfectly honest, I was really surprised when she and her fiancé asked me if I'd be willing to do it. I expected to be invited to the wedding. I didn't expect to be actually doing it. Uh, but I'm actually really glad that they did. Uh, I actually enjoy doing weddings. Um, but particu- I particularly enjoyed this one because they made it very clear to me that above all, they wanted their wedding to be gospel-filled and honoring to Christ. So that brought a lot of joy to my, my heart, specifically because it was my cousin asking me to do that, and I'm excited to see how, uh, what God has in store for their lives as they uh, started that journey together. Uh, it occurred to me as I was, as I was actually preaching this, the, or doing, uh, performing the wedding, that the people who were in front of me, there were a lot of them that probably would not have otherwise darkened the door of a church, but they got to hear the gospel that day, and more than that, they actually got to see the gospel played out in front of them as Haley and Marshall made vows before God to each other to love each other as Christ had loved them. So, weddings, while they're a lot of fun, they're, they're really a weighty matter. Haley and Marshall made a covenant with each other, which, by the grace of God, is going to stay with them for the rest of their lives. Uh, they made a lasting promise to each other before God and before family and friends to put each other's needs above their own, to love each other, to remain loyal and true to each other, for better or for worse, until God separates them by death. Uh, that's a big, big moment, and we spent weeks preparing for that. So as I read the charge to the bride and the groom explaining God's design for marriage and making it clear what God expected from them, I was convinced that they had a, a, a right understanding of the weight of what was happening. And as such, it was a real pleasure to see them agree really so gladly to commit themselves to that. And the, So the vows that they took in response really were all the more meaningful. Those vows are going to matter. Marriage, while it is a good thing, is not always necessarily an easy thing. Times are going to come where those commitments get put to the test. And as enthusiastic as Haley and Marshall were to take those vows on themselves, we all know that they're sinners and that they're not always going to live up to that commitment. While marriage, in pointing us to the gospel, also has a way of, it has this way of unearthing and exposing our own sinfulness. You don't always realize how selfish you are until you're called to suspend your own needs and, and for someone else, your own desires for someone else. We don't always keep that promise we made to love each other as Christ has loved us. Actually, we often fall short of that. In fact, I'm convinced that in addition to giving us a better understanding of the mystery of Christ's relationship with the church, which is his bride, God has purposely designed marriage to serve as one of those primary tools in our own holiness. So even while marriage is intended to point us to the, to, to the faithfulness of Christ, it also teaches us to exercise mercy and grace with each other, even as promises get broken. 
Husbands and wives don't come together because they are sinless. They are brought together by God to help each other pursue Christ in love to sin less. That's the purpose of those promises that they make to each other. It doesn't always work out that way. Sometimes our sin gets the better of us. And it's in those moments when husbands and wives must put those promises into action, loving and forgiving as Christ has loved and forgiven them. We fight to keep the promise even when it's been broken. The book of Deuteronomy, above all, is a book which is centered on God's promise to his people and their promise to him. This is a book that, like marriage, is centered on a covenant which is all about holiness. Our passage this morning is designed to set the scene as Moses speaks to the people of Israel and makes clear to them what God expected from them as his holy covenant people. Now, as we are starting this section, we need to understand, we, we are starting, this is a new big section in the book of Deuteronomy. And I'm just bringing that up because while there's, as we read this, you're going to notice there's some repetition of some things that we have covered in chapters 1 through 4. And I want you to know that I want you to, it's really tempting when you start seeing repetition to check out. I don't want you to check out. There's a reason this is being repeated. And uh, the reason of that, the point and purpose of all that, is really aimed to bring God's people to faith and obedience. So, as we study this passage this morning, my hope is that by setting the book of Deuteronomy out in its context, you will come away this morning having a better grip, really, on the structure of this book, and as such, you'll have a greater appreciation of the way that God's promises endure even when we fall short of what he's commanded us to do. So let's begin this morning by reading our passage. If you will, please stand with me as I read from God's word. Again, we're in Deuteronomy chapter 4, starting in verse 44, and then reading uh, through verse 5 of chapter 5. This is the word of the Lord. This is the law that Moses set before the people of Israel. These are the testimonies, the statutes, and the rules which Moses spoke to the people of Israel when they came out of Egypt, beyond the Jordan, in the valley opposite Beth Peor, in the land of Sihon, the king of the Amorites, who lived at Heshbon, whom Moses and the people of Israel defeated when they came out of Egypt. And they took possession of his land and the land of Og, the king of Bashan, the two kings of the Amorites, who lived to the east beyond the Jordan, from Aror, which is on the, e the edge of the valley of the Arnon, as far as Mount Sirion, that is Hermon, together with all the Arabah on the east side of the Jordan, as far as the sea of the Arabah, under the slopes of Pisgah. And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the rules that I speak in your hearing today, and you shall learn them and be careful to do them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb. Not with our fathers did the Lord make this covenant, but with us, who are all of us here alive today. The Lord spoke with you face to face at the mountain out of the midst of the fire while I stood between the Lord and you at that time to declare to you the word of the Lord. For you were afraid because of the fire and you did not go up into the mountain. 
This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God for it. Please be seated. Well, the structure of the book of Deuteronomy revolves, as we've seen, around the covenant which God made with Israel at Horeb, at Mount Sinai, which he did after he had rescued them out of Egypt, where they were slaves. That is a key feature we need to keep in mind as we study this book and as we think about why it is so important for understanding God's work of redemption. So far, most of our time in the book of Deuteronomy has really been centered on studying the history of what happened between when Israel was brought up, when they they made their exodus from Egypt, to the time when Moses actually spoke these words to the people as they were about to enter the promised land, to receive it under the leadership of Joshua. We've been really taking an in-depth study of this particular time of history that oftentimes I think gets ignored because it's uncomfortable uh, to prepare ourselves to to receive this law that's going to guide Israel as they go into the land. Now, that's important. And it's important because before we can get to God's expectation for his people, before we can get to the commandments that he gave to Israel, we need to understand that the basis, there's the, really the basis of the relationship that is at work here. We, we've covered that. We understand that there's history that God has with Israel leading up to this moment. And now we're ready to take the next step. That's why this second section of Deuteronomy is starting. We're ready to actually receive God's expectations for Israel. We're ready to receive his instructions to them to see how they're supposed to live as his holy people in the land that he's giving them. But before we get to look at the commands, the actual commandments of the law, it's important that we see that these statutes and rules are set within a framework of a promise. If you think about the actual law as a picture, think about the law as a picture of how to live before God, then you can think about the covenant which God made with Israel as the beautiful frame that actually holds those those things up on the wall, that picture up on the wall. The book of Deuteronomy isn't a book that's just a list of rules. It's not just a, just law. It's a book that frames the law and calls God's people to obedience within the framework, within the faithfulness of God and His promises. This is a book which establishes the basis of Israel's relationship with God, and it's a book which lays out God's expectations for them to live by faith in obedience to Him. So this morning, we're looking at the introduction to those expectations. As I was looking, uh, had a, had a, I, I kind of struggled a little bit to figure out exactly what part of this to preach to you because there's so much going on here that if I had read, if it's meant to flow as one piece, but if I preached it to you as one piece, we'd completely miss so much that's here. So we're taking a little bit of an extra dive here, looking at the intro before we actually get into the Ten Commandments, which is what we're going to do next week. So we're looking at that introduction, and as we do, We need to see that this is the basis for the rest of everything that Moses has to say from here on out all the way up to chapter 11. So this is a big new section, and what we're looking at here is is giving us a, a really a compass to look at those commandments so we don't lose our way. So we see this within the greater picture of what God is doing here. Everything that we read here is going to be a response to God and a response to His covenant promise. 
That promise, you may remember, had been broken by the generation of Israelites who first came out of Egypt. And so it needs to be reestablished. That's where we are today. So the main point of this text is to call us to a right response to the timelessness of God's promises. And our passage breaks down into four sections that teach us how we're to live in response to his covenant promises. So these sections are going to be our four points this morning, which if you have the sermon notes, you'll have. Otherwise, I'm going to read through those real quick for you. So first, we're going to be looking at the when of the promise, the when of the promise. Next, we'll be looking at the what of the promise, the substance of the promise. Third, we'll be looking at the why of the promise. And fourthly, we're going to be looking at the how of the promise. So let's start by looking at the when of the promise. Now, as we look at the wording of verse 44, it is pretty easy to recognize that this is starting a new section, a new chapter in the book of Deuteronomy. It's almost as if we've gone off, we've taken a lunch break, and now we're back for round two. So verses 44 through 49, they conclude chapter 4 for us, but really they are introducing us to the law that Moses put before the people, reminding us of the historical time and place in which all of this was happening. So you could essentially have not read chapters 1 through 4, jumped in right here, and you have just a little bit. Now you have a better understanding of what's going on. But here we're making sure this is like a, a recap before an episode that you might be watching, right? Bring us back up to speed. Now as we look at this, we need to see first and foremost that God's word is timeless. It is timeless, and so are his promises. And yet at the same time, the promises which God gave to Israel were given at a very particular time, and they were given in a very particular place. This is a chapter in the storyline of redemption that is really essential for us if we're going to get a handle to on, if we're really going to understand the beauty of the gospel of Jesus and how God has worked in the world to bring that about. We can see the importance of the timing of this particular covenant in Israel's history from the way which the law is introduced here. And before we actually get to the law itself, we get this time stamp telling us what Israel received, when they received it, and even where they were when they received it. We read that this is the law that Moses set out before the people of Israel. These are the testimonies, the statutes, and the rules which Moses spoke to the people of Israel when they came out of Egypt beyond the Jordan in the valley opposite Beth Peor in the land of Sihon, the king of the Amorites, who lived at Heshbon, whom Moses and the people of Israel defeated when they came out of Egypt. That is very specific. So, what we're seeing from this is while the law first came to Israel at Horeb, at Mount Sinai, where God spoke to the people from the mountain, we're told here that Moses set that before the people again, after they had defeated these two Amorite kings. You remember Og and Sihon. This is after they had received their land as part of the inheritance God was giving them. Now, this timing is important. Remember, Moses is speaking here to that second generation, the sons and the daughters of the first generation of Israelites who experienced the Exodus, who, who were 20 and above coming out of Egypt. Besides Joshua, Caleb, and Moses, these 
are all the children of those parents who had refused to go into the land, saying that if they did, it would consume them. Now the timing is important because it means that we're starting fresh here. The old rebellious generation which had refused to trust God and had turned away and was cursed to walk in the wilderness is gone. This new generation is ready to enter in and as such, a renewal of that promise, of that commitment to the promise needs to happen. They had gotten a taste of what God was going to do for them since they had fought and defeated Og and Sion. But now they're ready for the real thing. This, as we read this, this is more than just a refresher on the law and its commands. This is actually Moses setting the law down before the people, explaining to them the testimonies, the statutes, and the rules which he had first spoken to their fathers, calling them to obedience and faith. What had happened at Horeb when God first spoke to Israel out of the fire, where they witnessed the blaze of his glory, that wasn't just for that first generation alone. God's covenant was with them and for those who were to come after them for all generations. So we have this section first and foremost because this is actually the way a formal covenant document would read. But more than that, I think that God intends to make a point to us about the way that he works, that he has chosen to work in his world as he brings about his purposes and his plans for redemption. Even while we may have a high view of the Bible, it is very possible for us to unwittingly sterilize the scriptures by forgetting that these things didn't happen in a vacuum. Have you ever read a history book maybe in school and as you're doing so, it just seems like something completely foreign, almost like a fictional account, even though these things have, they happen. But they're so far away and you're so familiar with them. Yeah, George Washington crossed the, the river. Okay, whatever, let's move on. It's easy to sterilize the scriptures in that way, to forget that, that these things happened for real. And that they matter for us. They, they happened at a real time and in a real place. And God had a very specific purpose for working in those ways that he has. And at the time when he has. What happened at Sinai, it's not a myth, it's not a legend. It was a real event. An event that defined Israel and really as a nation where God set them apart, giving them his law, and where he cut his covenant with them. What's more, this introduction causes us to see that there is rhyme and reason to the timing of God's work. By setting the law before the people at this specific moment, God was using Moses to accomplish something very important in the life of the nation and in the story of redemption as a whole. He was renewing the covenant which he had first made with their fathers. And as such, he was completing that process of making that covenant with them. The timing of Deuteronomy and everything that Moses set before the people here on the plains of Moab as they're about to enter in and receive the promised land. All of that was bringing to completion the covenant between God and Israel, renewing it with the second generation and all generations that followed them. So if we zoom out a bit we, to see the significance of this moment in the grand history, in the grand story of the Bible, 
we can see how this moment mattered in God's grand plan of salvation. The law of Moses had a very important, very special role to play alongside God's covenant and the nation of Israel in the way that he was bringing salvation to the world. In Galatians 4, Paul describes how the law was given as a guardian. He says, but, verse 4 of chapter 4, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. So God had a purpose and plan for the law, and he had a purpose and plan for bringing that to completion and sending his own son to redeem us. So this is God working through history, accomplishing his purpose and plan, culminating in the work of Jesus on the cross. So this matters for you. This is not something that happened just a long time ago. You don't need to think about. This is part of our hope, part of our history which helps us even to trust God here and now. In the progression of the biblical timeline of salvation, this is a major, major moment, both for Israel and for us, since in Christ we have received grace and salvation, which sets us free both from our sin and, therefore, from the judgment of the law. What we're seeing described in this moment is is a piece of the puzzle of the mystery of God's wisdom and salvation being put into place, being clicked into place, which has ultimately resulted in our being set free from the curse of sin and the judgment we deserve. We're seeing really on a very small scale here in the timing of this how God works to save us even when we fail to measure up to His holiness. Brothers and sisters, it is it is hard sometimes to see the significance of what God is doing in our lives here and now. It's hard. Because we get so caught up in the demands of everyday life, those little minute things that we have to be faithful in because that's living life, to see the significance of how that matters in the grand scheme of things. Sometimes it's hard to trust that God really is in control of the world around us. That's why this point is so important for you. You see, the people who who gathered before Moses here didn't know everything God was bringing about. Now, we know it because we can see that thread, that red thread that is spread throughout Scripture, and we can see how God was bringing His plan about. But they didn't see that. They, They only saw so far. They knew God's promises, but they didn't have the whole picture. And that meant they had to trust God in this moment that he really was working to accomplish his promise. They didn't know that a day was coming when the Son of God would come and fulfill the law for them with his perfect obedience. You and I, we don't have to understand all the ins and the outs of what God is accomplishing in every moment of every day. But we do simply need to trust that he is bringing about his faithful promises to pass. And it's passages like this, I think, which trace out that history of faith and salvation which are key to equip us to trust God for what he's doing in the future. They are 
key to equip us to respond rightly by faith here and now. And that really is that brings us to our second point, the what of the promise. In chapter 5 verse 1, we're told in greater detail what it looked like for Moses to set the law before the people. It says, And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the rules that I speak in your hearing today, and you shall learn them and be careful to do them. Now, you probably notice some similarities between what we read right here and what we've already read in verse 44. That repetition, right? But that's important. There, we were told that Moses laid out the law before the people with its testimonies, its statutes, and its rules. And here again in verse 1, we are told that Moses, uh, he's referring to the statutes and the rules which make up the law. While it's tempting, I think, to chase out what distinguishes testimonies from statutes and from rules, the idea really is to speak holistically. Moses is laying out the whole law, and he's explaining to the people a little more directly here than he did at Sinai about how the law is going to apply to the people as they actually enter the land. What Moses is concerned about here is making sure that the people respond in a right way to God and to his commands. This is what God expects for his people to do in response to his word and, and about what he has made known to us about himself. And so we, we, see the, we see three commands here. The first command is to listen. To listen. To hear the statutes and the rules that Moses was saying to the people. Now last week, we saw that the reason that you and I are able to know, to know God and to say anything with any degree of accuracy about who He is is because He has broken in and made Himself known to us through His Word and through His work. But that self-revelation won't do any of us any good if we're not taking time to actually listen to what God has said. So the first command here is to hear, to listen. The first step to knowing God, to loving God, and to obeying God is listening to God. That's why it is so important that you are soaking yourself in the Scriptures. That is why it's so important for you to explore the scriptures each day, to to read good books that help you to read your Bible better, to spend time hearing God's word preached to you on a weekly basis, to, to talk together about what you're reading in your Bible. The first command which Moses gave to Israel in responding to God's promises was to listen to God's word. And so it is for us as well. The second command that Moses gave Israel was to learn God's law. Now that might seem surprisingly similar to hearing God's word, but Moses shows us actually how we're to treat his word. He shows us that responding rightly to what God has said means that we have to put effort into internalizing his commands in such a way that our hearts are actually affected by those things. I've always thought that one of the coolest jobs in the world has got to be being a professional ice cream taster. Yes, they exist. Epic. But here's the thing. They don't actually get to eat the ice cream. They actually spit it out. Can can you imagine doing that with your lunch later? Food can't benefit you unless you take it in, unless you chew it up 
and swallow it, and unless your body digests it, so it is with the Word of God. It's not enough to just audibly, audibly listen to it. We have to take it in. We have to learn it, to meditate on it, to savor it, and to digest it, so that we can in turn do the third thing which Moses says, which is to do it. It's no good for us to know God's Word or to learn God's Word if we don't actually put God's Word into action, being careful to do what God says. Now that should be obvious, but the disconnect shows up, that disconnect shows up more places and more ways than you and I might care to admit. I cannot tell you how many times I have heard people say, I know that God wants me to do this, but... You ever said that? I've lost track of how many times I have heard or said that to myself. Friends, we've not responded rightly to God or His self-revelation if we have not also resolved ourselves to obey what He has revealed. Think about what Jesus said to those Jewish leaders in John 5 when He tells these Bible experts, You do not have the Word of God abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom He has sent. You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about Me. Yet you refuse to come to Me that you may have life. That's the end goal of God's Word. God hasn't spoken to us just so that we can have really cool-looking Bibles to put on our shelves or verses to tattoo on our arms. He means for the seed of His Word to bear fruit in us. That's what living in a right response to the covenant promise of God looks like. It looks like faith, the kind of faith that acts. So, let's lay out the what of the, of the promise. It's to hear God's Word. It's to learn God's Word, to internalize it. And it's to obey God's word. That's the way we respond to God's faithful promise. And that leads us to our third point, the why of obedience. The why of the promise. God, by his very nature, is worthy of this sort of response of faith, love, and obedience. But Moses lays out more reasons for why God's people should live in this way. In verses 2 and 3, he says, The Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb. Not with our fathers did the Lord make this covenant, but with us, who are all of us here alive today. Now, this is a very interesting thing for Moses to have said. And it builds a bit on what we've already seen about the significance of the timing of all of this. Besides the fact that God deserves our affection and our obedience simply because He is our Creator and because He is good, Moses adds another reason specific to Israel about why the nation was called to obey the law. It's because God made His covenant with them at Horeb that they are then to hear, learn, and obey the statutes and the rules of this law. Do you, you see how the covenant is this heading over everything else that's following there? I'm not getting anybody saying yes. The covenant reigns over this. This is covenant response. Here's the situation. God had made a covenant with Israel at Horeb. Okay? That happened. 
He had set Israel apart to be his. He established a relationship with them where he was their God and their king and they were his people. He called them by his own name and set them apart. He made them holy. That was the whole aim of the covenant which God made with Israel on Mount Sinai. This is a covenant that is distinct from other covenants which God had made. Moses says, Not with our fathers did the Lord make this covenant. So Abraham, though he was called by God, blessed by God, and received a covenant with God, did not receive this covenant which God made with his children at Mount Sinai. Likewise, Isaac and Jacob, who inherited God's covenant with Abraham, did not receive this covenant. God's promise to them came before the law. Something special came to Israel through Moses, a covenant that God made with Israel as their king, which they, as his subjects, were then called to live in response to in an appropriate way. And that's the purpose of the law, to show them how to live in an appropriate way in this relationship, this covenant relationship with God. God's covenant at Horab with Israel stands out from the other covenants that he gave to Adam, Noah, Abraham, even David, Because in this covenant, God gave his people his law. The benefits of those other covenants God ensured on the basis of his own faithfulness. It is always, I will do this. In this covenant, there's a requirement of responsibility on Israel's behalf. They were called to listen and obey. It was only then that they could expect to enjoy the benefits of the covenant, especially the land. Now, that is not to say that Israel was supposed to find their righteousness through works. It is to say that in the covenant God made with Israel, he gave them his law to show them the way that they were to live by faith in obedience to him. The law was given, Paul explains in Galatians 3.19, until the promised offspring, Jesus Christ, came to whom the promise had been made. Jesus came to fulfill the promises which God had made in the covenants and to fulfill the demand of the law, which shows us what it means to actually live as God's holy people. In the new covenant which we have in the person and through the work of Jesus Christ, we are not under the law, but at the same time, we are not set free to live in sin. Rather, we are set free to live under the dominion of King Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. So we see that we have a reason to live in obedience to Christ, just as Israel had a reason to live in obedience to God in observance of these rules and these statutes, a reason which is founded on the covenant that we have in the blood of our Savior. Paul explains in Romans 6, verses 12 through 14, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under Grace. So, you can see the connection. The precedent that Moses' command to Israel sets forth, a response, or sets forth uh, something for our own response to the covenant of grace that we have in Jesus Christ. He has done what we could not do. 
He has actually delivered us from the demands of the law, and He has given us His own righteousness and a right heart and the Holy Spirit living in us, teaching us, motivating us to live rightly before God. This is the right way to respond to the faithfulness of God's covenant promises. And that brings us to our fourth point this morning, which is the how of the promise. In verses 4 and 5, Moses recounts again how the Lord spoke to Israel at Horeb. He says, The Lord spoke with you face to face at the mountain out of the midst of the fire. Now, God didn't literally speak to the Israelites face to face. They would have been burned up. But he did appear to them in such a way that they saw the glory, they saw his glory in the blaze which was on the mountain without being consumed by the holiness of God. By saying that God spoke to the people face to face, Moses is really capturing the intimacy of the way that God appeared to the people. They did not merely hear of him from a third party. They heard him. This was part of the special relationship they had with God as his holy people. Even still, there was this separation between them and God. In verse 5, Moses also describes how he stood between the Lord and between the people at that time and declared to them the word of the Lord. This was Moses' role as a prophet and as the servant of the Lord, as he's, as he's called in the Bible. He spoke God's word to the people, teaching them, detailing to, uh, it to them, and explaining it to them. That's what he's doing here in the book of Deuteronomy. When the people heard God speak his law to them, they were afraid. For the first time in their lives, they had come face to face with the reality of God's holiness and the power of his might. They learned firsthand how sweet and awesome God is. As they trembled with fear, they depended on Moses to serve as an intermediary between this holy God and themselves, as a go-between. Days later, after they betrayed God and broke the covenant by worshiping the golden calf, Moses, we find, was actually the one who went before the Lord and begged God and interceded before God, uh, interceded on their behalf before God, asking God to forgive them and to restore them to himself. Moses played an incredibly important role in serving Israel teaching them God's commands, instructing them, leading them, rebuking them when they got out of line, representing them, and interceding for them. God used him in a special way, conveying his word for the people through him. And Moses, for all his faults, the author of Hebrews tells us, was faithful in God's house as a servant. He showed the people how to live in response to this covenant God had made with them. But at the same time, Moses was really only able to do so much. He couldn't change people's hearts. As a sinner himself, he could not remove sin from them. The law which Moses delivered to the people while showing Israel the way of holiness had no power to actually make them walk in it. So it is that something greater has come. Listen to Hebrews 3, verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers... You who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus 
has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confession and our boasting in our hope. So Moses, Moses was a great man. His shining face was a reflection of the holy God that he loved and who he served. But Christ is greater. His glory is not merely a reflection of the glory of God. It is the glory of God. He serves us as our great high priest, perfecting what we see in the life of Moses, since he is able not only to represent us before the Father, but to make us holy in himself, and to equip us to live in a right way before him, because he has made us alive with him, having defeated death, and having joined him, us to him by faith. The grace that is that grace is what makes the glory of the gospel outshine the glory of the law. The purpose of all this is not to make you discount the law or to think that it is irrelevant. Certainly it is not. Rather, what I want to show you as we have examined this introduction to the law is that the law had a place and a purpose for preparing the way for Jesus. Okay? That was the historical role of the law. He is the yes and the amen of all of God's promises. He is the one who fulfilled the law and all its righteous demands. Even as Moses called the nation of Israel to live in a right response to the law and to the rules and the statutes that, that he taught them, we too must see the importance of living in a right response to the covenant promise that God's people have in Jesus, who is the Son of God. So brothers and sisters, let us relish the rich history that we have been grafted into by faith. Let us respond rightly to God's word, listening to it, learning it, obeying it. Let us rest in the fulfillment of God's promise. And finally, let us glory in our Redeemer who has rescued us from sin and equipped us to live as sons and daughters of God, our King. Let's pray. Lord, this morning we want to thank you for the way that you always keep your promises. Father, as, we, as we've taken a deep dive into the history of of our salvation and the history of the rich gift of the gospel that has been given to us by Christ. We just want to pray, Father, that you would give us hearts to respond rightly to it. Father, we thank you that you keep your promises even when we are faithless. We thank you, Father, for the way that you are working in Christ to make us holy like him. And we thank you, Father, for the promise we have in him that one day we will be like him, that we will be holy, that we will no longer have this, this attraction to sin. We will not desire that. It will be far from our minds. Our full desire will be to obey you, to worship you, to love you. And Father, we long for that day. Because even this morning, we have had to battle desires for other things. 
In some ways, we have even fallen to those things. We confess those things to you, Father. We ask for grace by your Spirit to live out the promises of the Gospel that our faith would hold fast this week. We ask, Father, that you would give us an affection for you that never dies. And in, in, and in that, Father, we pray that you would prepare us for heaven as you receive us to yourself, an unblemished, spotless bride. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.